have you ever met a radiant person? I mean, you're with them and you're just like, oh my goodness, you glow. I know two people um, at our church in London when we were in London, and both of them came into the church because they said that they saw glowing people going into the church. My Aunt Isi was one of those people, even in her 80s, she was glowing. She was um, only, as I told you before, under five feet tall. I was taller than her, than she, when I was eight years old. I was so proud. That was like a moment, like, Isi, I'm taller than you. But, and you know, she was, uh, she was not thin, she was lined, and yet she was so radiant with the love of Jesus that she attracted people wherever she went. And people would just start talking to her, and they'd always say this, I don't know why I'm talking to you. I don't know why I'm telling you my whole story. And she'd be like, that's right, just keep it coming. And everyone would tell her everything. My father had that radiance, didn't he? And you saw it in my father. You saw it in my mother, too. And I remember when I was 12 years old, the speech teacher um, in my class at junior high, public junior high, asked if my father would come and do a speech. You know how it is when it's your dad that's coming to do a speech? You just want to be so protective of your dad. You know, like, don't you dare say one thing about the hair that's missing from his head or about the chip tooth. You know, you're going down. But he came in. And it was within a few minutes he took command of that class. And all the kids were like, I wish your dad was my dad after class. And they all loved him. Everybody loved him. But it was, it was that glow. He, he would smile, and it was just that glow that he carried. God wants us to be radiant for him. He wants all of us to glow. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus said, let your light so shine that men will see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 7, I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. In Ephesians 5.8, it says, For you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I've noticed that as um, I'm aging, my skin is thinning. I'm seeing more that's underneath than I have ever seen before. And I'm thinking, you know, whatever I'm treasuring in me is going to be seen more and more and more as I age. So if I am filling myself up with the light of Jesus Christ, then it's going to show through this translucent skin even more. In John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In John 1, 9, John said, He is the true light that gives light to every man that enters the the world. In Psalm 36, 9, the psalmist said, it's in your light that we see light. In Luke 11, Jesus, the light of the world, is going to show us three ways to become more radiant, more glowing, 
The first way is through prayer. Secondly, is through positioning Jesus at the center of our lives, right on our heart. And finally, number three, it's through an honest perspective. And Luke eleven thirty six says, we'll read a little bit later, but NLT says this, if you are filled with light and no dark corners, then your whole life will be radiant as though a floodlight were filling you with light. I remember when Carmageddon was going on. Carmageddon was the, uh, what do you call, the improvements that were being done on the 405 freeway. And I was driving up to Ventura, and I was on that freeway coming um, past Mulholland Drive. And I remember that it was slow, but they had these floodlights that were so bright. It was like it was daylight, and it was as if they could see into our car. Another time... Um, We were on our way to the castle in Austria. We had landed in Munich. And our car was absolutely filled. It had both my grandsons, my daughter, my son-in-law, a couple of other people who had come in. Brian and I were in this van. And it's just filled with luggage and all of us. And the next thing I knew, there was a car in front of us that said, follow me. And it said in like every language possible, follow me. And so the man who was driving our car, Robin Turner, said, I have to follow this car. It's the police. So we follow off. It takes us through the woods and then into this parking lot. And we're in this parking lot. And all of a sudden, all these floodlights came in where they could see right into the car. Every person, everything. A police officer came up. He collected all our passports, wanted to know who we were. Um, They thought we were refugees probably, or gypsies from all the luggage and the the van that was overflowing with people. But those floodlights told them differently, told them what was really going on. But that's the kind of light that God wants to flood into our lives, that we might be radiant. So first of all, prayer makes us radiant. Perhaps you remember the story of Moses, that after spending 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord up on Mount Sinai, He was so radiant that he had to wear a veil because the people couldn't take the light. Like, oh, light, light, light. You know what it's like to stare into the sun? I mean, your eyes start watering. You have to close them. Or for someone like me, I know what it's like to try to put my contacts on first thing in the morning. When you turn on the light, your eyes are like, don't do that to me. I don't want to see. And in that radiance that is so bright. Moses had to wear a veil. Exodus 34, 33 through 35, 2 Corinthians 3, 13 tells us that Moses had to put a veil over his face. Jesus, as he was praying on the Mount of Transfiguration, became radiant. His garments became radiant. His face was shining. So as we pray, we are coming into the presence of our all-glorious Heavenly Father, who is the father of lights, and in him is no shadow at all. We are coming into the Holy of Holies, a place that is flooded with light. We are coming in Jesus' name, in the power of the light that has come to earth. Jesus' disciples, having seen him praying at different occasions, when he would go off alone to pray, as he prayed before the multitudes, Um, As Luke brings out, it was his custom. And then, of course, on the Mount of Transfiguration and choosing the disciples, went to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. 
as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Teach us, how, how do we pray? And what Jesus does is he gives a model for prayer, not a prayer that we're to repeat over and over again, because in Matthew chapter five, it tells us not to use vain repetitions. Excuse me, Matthew chapter six tells us not to use vain repetitions when we pray, not to pray the same thing over and over again. Have you noticed when you repeat something over and over again, it often loses its meaning because you're just repeating it. Like Brian, 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 Brian. You know, it just loses all meaning. <laughs> he doesn't listen, and I'm just saying it because I'm getting more and more upset because nobody's paying attention, especially when somebody's talking into their phone. But this is the essential prayer. This is the model prayer for us. J. Vernon McGee wrote a book on this prayer, and it was called, or it is called, The Prayer Jesus Did Not Pray. Even though we call it the Lord's Prayer, it's really our prayer. It's the prayer that the Lord gave us to pray. It is prayer essentials, and it begins with our Father who lives in heaven or who art in heaven. Prayer is to be relational, relational. I'm reading in Jeremiah my perfect, my perfect devotions. Yes, my perfect present devotions. I'm in Jeremiah. But in Jeremiah, the Lord says, I didn't want the sacrifices. The sacrifices have become empty. I ordained sacrifices to get rid of the obstacles that kept me from having a relationship with you, with Israel. It was all about relationship. And so with God, it's all about relationship. It's not slaves to a master, and it's not subjects to a king, but children to their father. And when it's children to the father, it brings a whole different dimension to prayer. Prayer is also unifying. We pray our father. All of a sudden, we're all on equal footing before God, our father, the one we share and it makes us look at each other and regard each other differently to give respect and honor to each other. It reminds us of God's sovereignty and our ultimate destiny that we are with our Father who is in heaven. This is where he rules and reigns and sees everything. Today I was reading in Jeremiah chapter 16, and God says, I am watching everything closely. And I see everything. It is acknowledging. It also says, um, hallowed be thy name. It is the acknowledging of God's great name. That it's to be awed. It's to be revered. It's to be considered and thought about and set apart. What is God's name? I am that I am. I am the becoming one, or I am that which my people need. It's to remind us that the source of all we need for life and godliness is found in God. His name should be at the forefront of our prayers. We are coming to him because he is our good father. He is great in power. He is generous. He is faithful. Then the objective of every prayer is your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is not the means to get God on board with our plans, but to get us on board with his plans. Prayer is not about getting my will accomplished, but becoming a participant in his will. Prayer is the acknowledgement that God's will and God's ways are ultimately the best ways and will and exactly what we need. Then prayer is the request, our daily petition, our daily reminder that God is over our physical well-being, our emotional welfare, and our spiritual success. And so we pray physical well-being for our provision. Give us this day our daily bread. God cares about our daily needs. But I love that it's daily because it reminds us every day that it's because of God that we're eating. It's God's faithfulness to us. You see, sometimes we can say, Lord, where are you? I, I, you're never there. And he's looking at you going, did your fingers work today? Are your eyes working? Are you able to breathe? Do you have food in your refrigerator? Yes. Then I'm here and I love you. How many signs do you need? It's kind of like your husband, you know, do you love me? I came home, didn't I? Okay, good enough. But it's also our emotional welfare because we, sit, we pray, forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Forgiveness is emotional health. It's no longer that lingering condemnation of, oh, I've got to atone for my sins. You know, they're still not forgiven. No, the debt's been canceled because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And there are no more obstacles between our Father in heaven and ourselves because of Jesus. But we should not put obstacles in the way of others coming to the Father by our unforgiveness towards them. Forgiving others actually sets us free, gets rid of the obstacles to our service to God, to, to our vision of God. Did you ever realize that unforgiveness gives people too much power over your thoughts, actions, feelings, and spiritual growth? It stunts them because you're putting those people that have hurt you in the place of God. You're saying, God, you're not great enough to, to remove these people. You allowed this in my life. And it gives them too much power in your life. I don't want anyone but Jesus having that kind of power in my life. I read about a, a woman who was raped, and she came to testify against her rapist. And then the other women would testify. And they asked her, why are you willing? And she said, because he got one hour of my life, and I refuse to give him any more hours or minutes or moments of my life. And I thought, you know, that is such a good thing for us to remember. Why should we let anyone but God have the hours and minutes and moments of our life? We don't want those intrusions, right? So forgiveness is something that is healthy emotionally for us, for us. Because, you know, have you ever noticed the people that you're not forgiving, they're having like a great time. You're like, you should know I'm really mad at you. 
if you knew how much I hated you, you might not be having that much fun. They're like, yeah, really? Ha, ha, ha. I'm still having fun. They're like, ha, ha. And what happens? You're more miserable because they're having fun, right? So who's hurting now? It's you. So for your emotional health, we say to the Lord, Lord, I recognize I'm forgiven. But Lord, come in and help me to forgive those that I feel are indebted to me, that have hurt me that have wounded me. Lord, let it just be gone so I am free to think about you. I am free to serve you. It's good for our spiritual health because we're to pray and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We think we are stronger than we are. Paul said, beware when you think you stand lest you fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Beware when you think you're strong enough for temptation. Think of it this way. Don't go on a diet and leave an open box of Krispy Kremes in your house. You're not that strong. You have to get rid of all the impediments to that. Paul said, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You're not supposed to lead those temptations in your life that you can fall to. And so the Lord wants us to recognize that we're not that strong. Lord, do not let me be led into temptation. Don't, don't lead me to my, my own power of resistance. Come and keep me from temptation. It is also a prayer of protection from the evil one. This evil one is called the enemy the slanderer, the adversary, the destroyer in the Bible. Satan is so strong. In Jude, we read that Michael, who is the archangel, didn't even bring a railing accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. We need protection from the evil one. And Jesus told us to pray for that protection. You know, I've, I've heard people in their prayers you know, one minute talking to Jesus and the next minute rebuking Satan, like, get out of here, you stupid little serpent. You're like, ah, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I just don't want anything to do with him. They say um, with sociopaths, I read this book called The Sociopath Next Door. <laughs> For obvious re reasons, you know. It was actually recommended to me by somebody I love. So I read it. And one of the things, you know, at the end of the book, because I'm reading it going, okay, if I meet a sociopath, how do I handle it? You know, how, how do I get the upper hand? And you know what that conclusion is? You can't. Get away from them. Stay away from them. That's what you do with a sociopath. Ditch them. Do everything to, you know, move away. So they're not next door anymore. And Satan is the great sociopath. We can't control him ever. What we need is protection and insulation from him. And so that's a prayer. Now we learn in Luke 5, uh, Luke 11, 5 through 11, that prayer is to be persistent, petitioning, and expectant. So Jesus gives us two parables that are arguments from the lesser to the greater. In other words, if a friend will get out of bed, even though it's inconvenient, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's sacrificial, even though he's going to wake up his whole household to do so, it's a disturbance. If a friend will get out of bed to give bread 
to a persistent friend who won't stop knocking on the door pounding, then certainly your heavenly father will give you what you need as you persist in prayer. I love the NLT because it says, because of his shameless persistence. Have you ever thought that God wants you to be shamelessly persistent in prayer? I think of Jairus, who he was walking with Jesus to his house because his daughter was sick. Then the servant comes and says, don't trouble the master any longer. Your daughter is dead. And Jesus turns to Jairus and says, don't be afraid, just believe. And he goes with him all the way to the house and raises his little girl. That shameless persistence to keep walking with Jesus. To say, you know what? I don't care what you say. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. It's interesting. My, my daughter, Kristen, well, actually, my son too, they have all these stories about persistent prayer. Years ago, my dad bought my son, Char, uh, Robbie Robot from Radio Shack. And it was like this little robot that you would talk to. And Robbie would sometimes bump into walls and go, excuse me, did I do that? And then he would turn and go the other way. But you could give him commands and he would get things. And he'd given it to Char. Well, at the same time, Brian and I had bought a doughboy pool. We couldn't really afford this pool, but we bought this doughboy from Toys R Us. It cost us like $120, and it was like a great expenditure. And so we filled it up. We put sand underneath it, filled it up with water. And Kristen had a little girlfriend over, and they were so excited to go out in the pool and swim. And when they got there, all we heard was screaming because Char had decided to drown Robbie Robot in the pool along with uh, Brian's shovels and rakes and anything else he could find. So the pool's empty, filled with dirt, and there's Robbie smack dab dead in the bottom of the pool. And I said to Char, you killed Robbie. He goes, I don't care. I said, you don't care. You don't care that your grandpa gave you that Robbie robot? You don't care? He goes, I don't care. And I said, really? I said, did you know grandpa hardly had any money? But he saw that robot and he thought, oh, but Char would love that so much. So I'll take my last bit of money because I love my grandson so much. And I will buy him a Robbie robot. And you don't care? You don't care? And now look at that. Robbie is dead. And I I pulled him out with the net. And I was going, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I was playing it up because I was so mad that he said, I don't care. I don't care. So then Char starts crying, which was my objective. And he says, Lord, make Robbie rise again. Lord, let Robbie rise again. And I said to him, don't you pray that because you killed Robbie and it's not going to happen. So about four days later, it was at night, Brian and I were asleep and we heard, excuse me, did I do that? Excuse me, did I do that? Excuse me, did I do that? Brian and I get up and went, no. We look at each other. Char comes running down the hallway and says, Jesus rose Robbie from the dead. That's what I call persistent prayer. Because he kept praying and praying that God would save Robbie Robot. But we're to be persistent in prayer. We're to keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Shameless persistence. Because our desperation for God to work, because we know he's our only 
recourse. He's the only source. He's the only one that can work. We are to go to God for all that we need. James 4, 2, James said, you have not because you ask not. Prayer is to be persistent. And prayer is to petition. It is to ask. It is to seek. It is to knock. That's what we do in prayer. This is our objective in prayer, to get the will of God done, yes, but to do it by asking, by seeking, by knocking, saying, Lord, what's the door that you want to open? Finally, prayer is to be expectant because Jesus said, everyone who asks receives. We are to be expectant, like God is going to raise Robbie from the dead. Why? Because I'm asking. It's to be expectant. God is going to do the best thing. It's it's to search. Because those who seek find, what are we searching for? The will of God. Lord, what are you doing in this situation? I want in. I want to be a participant. To the one who knocks, the door is open. Lord, what do you have for me to do? Where do you have for me to go? God answers all our prayers with the very best answer, and that's to send the Holy Spirit, who, according to John chapter 16, guides us into all truth. And Jesus said in verse 14 that the Spirit takes what is his and gives it to us. So the Spirit is literally appropriating Jesus and all that belongs to Jesus to us and giving it to us. God gives the Spirit to all who asks. No disappointments, no bad gifts from God. As it says in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no turning. So now Jesus' next example reminds us again to be expectant. Because our Father in heaven knows what we have need of. And if we ask for bread, he's not going to give us a stone. And if we ask for a fish, he's not going to give us a serpent, a snake. Or if we ask for an egg, he won't give us a scorpion. God never returns our prayer with something that's harmful for us. I remember years ago going through a really hard trial and wanting to pray with somebody at church. And when I prayed with this woman, she took my face in her hands. And she said, Cheryl, remember that everything that touches you comes through the filter of God's love. If he's allowed it, he's got something great in store. And sure enough, in that situation, God did do something absolutely miraculous, wonderful, incredible. But when we pray, he does not send us harmful things. He gives us the very best answer. So if a father, if, if a natural father, even a natural mother, who were all evil by nature, in us dwells no good thing, and yet we wouldn't respond to our child's request that way. How much more our Heavenly Father would not respond to our request for the Holy Spirit with something harmful, or our request for our needs with something harmful. So the more we pray and seek our Heavenly Father, for all our needs, asking, seeking, knocking, receiving the Spirit. Because prayer is ultimately being in the presence of God and conversing. The more radiant we will become. 
You know, I searched out, as I told you earlier, a woman that prayed to pray with when I was going through a terrible trial. When I'm going through a trial, I want people to pray with me, and I look for people who pray. How many of you, you know, you look for a prayer warrior? Where is a prayer warrior when you need it? You know, I want a prayer warrior. I want someone who's going to intercede. I want someone who knows the way into the Holy of Holies and will pray for me. And so the more we pray, the more radiant we will become. But radiance also comes when Jesus is on the throne of our hearts, Luke eleven fourteen through 28. Radiance, we are not naturally light. As we read in Ephesians, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and there was darkness inside of us. In fact, it says in NLT, Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to love to sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Jesus tells us a story, and the story is that there is this strong man who is guarding his house, and all the strong man's goods are perfectly safe because he's the strong man. And he's got an army and an armament until a stronger force comes in and binds the strong man and plunders all his goods, disarming the enemy and dividing the spoils. Jesus brings the light of his presence into our lives by driving out the enemy and taking possession of our hearts. But not everyone who experienced Jesus' deliverance wanted Jesus to reign in their lives. And the same thing is true today. Not everyone who experiences Jesus' deliverance wants Jesus to reign. I, I know of so many that have come to Christ, had their lives transformed, cleaned up, only to return to that very thing that put them in shackles in the first place, whether it was a lifestyle, whether it was an addiction. And when they go back, the second estate is worse than the first. On this occasion, we read that Jesus had cast a demon out of a man who was mute. And when Jesus cast the demon out, the man began to speak, but this upset the Pharisees. It upset the Pharisees. They didn't want this man being set free by Jesus. If he had been set free by them or by their sons, they would have been all right. But the fact that he was set free by Jesus, they would have kept him in that demonic state rather than to see the power of Jesus demonstrated. So they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. The Pharisees, in their increasing denunciation of Jesus, became increasingly irrational and unreasonable. And so Jesus pointed out the folly of their reasoning. If Satan tried to cast out Satan, his kingdom would be doomed by civil war. And again, Jesus pointed out that the strong man is, is in charge of the castle until a stronger comes. Jesus then warned the crowd if they only allowed him to do miracles, to just clean and heal, but didn't receive him on the throne of their heart and let him reign and continue to hold the castle of their heart, then that power that had their heart, that shackled their heart, would go and get 
seven more demonic powers and come in and take over that heart. And the second estate would be worse than the first. Jesus must be on the throne of our hearts. If the stronger man is not present, it leaves the house vulnerable. If Jesus is not enthroned in our hearts, if our first allegiance isn't to Jesus, if he's not the protector of our hearts, if we're trying to protect our own hearts, then our hearts are vulnerable. At this time, as Jesus is giving this incredible message, there's a woman that shouts out, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. To this, Jesus responded, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Those with Jesus on the throne of their heart, hear his word and keep it. So we become radiant as we keep Jesus on the throne of our heart and we listen and obey him. That's what it is to have this treasure in earthen vessels, to have the light of Christ shining in our hearts. And then finally, we need a radiant perspective. Luke eleven twenty nine 29 through 54. Jesus points to the bias of the Pharisees. They refused to acknowledge what they saw, heard, and knew to be true. They knew this man was delivered from a demon. They knew it was the power of God, the finger of God. They knew, but they refused to acknowledge it. And they tried to spin it and do everything to discredit Jesus. Why? Why? What kept them from believing? Their own desires. They did not want Jesus to be the Messiah because they didn't want to lose their prominence or position in society. They, like so many today, wanted a Messiah of their own imagination, a Messiah that they could control and tell what to do. And that's how so many people are. They want a Jesus that they can control, that they can manipulate. They want a genie, not a Jesus. No matter what the Pharisees saw, heard, or knew from the scripture, they would not acknowledge. Jesus points to two Gentile examples of a willingness to believe what they saw and heard. The people of Nineveh. They, Nineveh was a wicked, wicked city. In fact, it was so wicked that God sent the prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell them if they don't change, 40 days, I'm wiping them out. It's over. That's how wicked this city is. You know the story of Jonah. He tried to go the other way. He ended up in the belly of a well for three days and three nights until the, the well spit him out. This was one of the first um, stories we taught Char. And we were always so excited to have our kids tell a Bible story to our parents. Like, see what great parents we are? We are teaching Bible stories to our kids, and they're getting it. So we're with my mom and dad, and we're like, Char, tell Grandma and Grandpa the story of Jonah. And he's like, Jonah was a naughty poiteur who didn't want to do what the Lord said. We're like, yes. And what happened? He got swallowed. He got swallowed. And we're going, yes. But what happened after that? He prayed. Yes. What did he pray? He goes like this. Oh, Lord, please spit me out. (laughs) Good enough. 
But we read that this heathen nation with this awful message repented. It wasn't a great message. It was like a mean message by a mean-spirited prophet who actually wanted them to be burned up. I mean, think about this. Jonah had no love for Nineveh. He's like, he wasn't going in going, please repent. Please repent so you'll be spared. He's like, no, you guys are going down in 40 days. Can't wait. 40 days. Make it 39. Do I have 38? You know, you're going down. I can't wait to watch you burn. You know, that was Jonah's message. And then I want you to know, Jonah was not a pretty sight. He had been in the digestive juices wrapped with seaweed. He probably didn't smell so good either. And he comes into Nineveh and they're all like, oh, that man, you know, with all the the pits in his skin, the seaweed in his hair, he's telling us repent or 40 days we're going to be destroyed. And what did Nineveh do? At that message, that mean message by that strange looking prophet, they repented. They put on sackcloth and ashes and they asked for mercy from God and God gave them mercy. But Jesus said, one who is, who is greater than Jonah is here. Think about Jesus' message. Jesus' message is repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. Not judgment, but the kingdom of God. Mercy is present. Love is present. As Paul tells us in Romans 2, 4, it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here is the opportunity, and yet they're saying, no, uh uh we don't want that. He then brings up the queen of Sheba, who traveled all the way from Africa to verify what she'd heard. She had heard in her own country that there was a wise king in Israel, so wise that Israel was enriched by his reign. And so she got a huge retinue together. And she went with all her her company, her advisors, and made her way to Israel to meet with Solomon. It was uncomfortable. It was inconvenient. And yet she went because of what she heard. And when she saw We're told that her spirit left her because it was all true and it was even greater than what she expected. She went because she heard and believed. But here they are. They're actually seeing it, hearing it. It's verified by the scriptures and they will not receive it. The Pharisees demanded a sign from Jesus. Now, when they demand a sign, It's because they refuse to receive the signs that God is giving them. They want Jesus to bend to their will. They want Jesus to do whatever they tell him to do. You see, the demonics are being delivered. That's a sign. The blind are seen. That's another sign. Lepers are being cleansed. That's a sign. The deaf are hearing. That's a sign. The diseased are healed. That's a sign. Multitudes are fed. That's a sign. All of these are signs, but this is not enough for them. They want their own sign, like destroy the Romans. Rid our country of the Romans, then we'll believe. You do this and this and this in my life, and then maybe, maybe I'll consider you. But Jesus knew 
the condition of their hearts. And even given those signs that they demanded, they would still not believe. And Jesus said, it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. They want their own sign. And he said, there's only one sign that will be given. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. This is your sign. Because he's getting right to the root of what they want. Now, they wanted to control him. They wanted him to do what they desired. And when they couldn't control him, what did they want? They wanted him dead. They wanted him destroyed. He said, you're going to get your wish. You're going to get your will. I'm going to die. And I'll be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. But Jesus, like Jonah, would come back to rule and reign over life. Jesus was the light that couldn't be hidden He was in the center of the room, and they didn't know what to do with him. He was such light. His word was light. His actions were light, and they corresponded to Scripture. God placed Jesus at the center of the nation. He was that light on the lampstand that could not be hidden. Jesus then points to their biased perspective. You see, they couldn't see because there was a blockage. Jesus said, the lamp of the body is the eye. Verse 34, therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light. And when the bright, shining lamp gives you light, You see, there are things that were blocking their vision. There were biases. They didn't want to believe, so they couldn't see because they didn't want to see. It was these blockages that were distorting the light and wouldn't let the light in the eye. They were to receive the light. The light was to enter their eyes, and they say, I see and come into their whole being. Years ago when we were, um, we just purchased, um, it was like a Home Depot building down in Vista. It had been um, a FYI or a um, building shop where you could buy building supplies, lumber supplies down in Vista. I'll never forget when the building first became available. I saw a sign on it and I told Brian, Brian, the Builder's Emporium, it's, it's for sale, and they painted it blue. Blue is my favorite color, so if it was blue, I knew it was God. That's how I knew a couple of cars we were supposed to buy because they were blue. These were given to us, so they're gray and um, white because when you get a free car, you don't care what color it is. But this was a, this, every other car that we bought, it was blue. So when I saw that, I said, Brian, it's blue. So he comes down, he meets me there, and we literally walked around the building seven times just to see what would happen and to pray. Like, Lord, if this building is, is yours, then, you know, then give it to us. But I remember with, the, with this building, just the, um, I can't remember why I brought that building up. It'll come to me. It's not in my notes. This is why you need to stay with your notes. So it's something about a blockage will distort the light. And I have no idea what that has to do with that building that we got 
or the fact that it was blue. See, blue was the thing that threw me off, and if I'd stayed with my thought, but anyway, let me go to the Snow Queen instead. In the Snow Queen story, this little, she breaks this glass, and a piece of this fragment of glass gets in this little boy's eye. And when it gets in his eye, it's a brother and sister, and all of a sudden, the little boy, everything that is ugly looks beautiful, and what is beautiful looks ugly, and what is evil looks good, and what is good looks evil. And he can't see straight just because of this piece of glass that's cutting into his eye. And that's how it is sometimes with us, those blockages that we have where we can't see straight. Ah, so when we took my aunt to the building, <laughs> so she could see the, the building that we had gotten, we took her and we said, Aunt Easy, she was down for Thanksgiving, Aunt Easy, this is right before she died. She died in February. This is in November. We take her to the building. The whole board is inside the building and they're just praying over the building. And I take her in and she looks at the building. She looks at it and she looks at me and tears are running down her eyes. And she says, I see, I see, I see it. Oh my goodness, what light was flooding her body. She could see what we couldn't see yet. We saw a concrete floor and all this work that needed to be done. She died before a building was completed, but God let her see it before it ever happened. I see it, I see it. And she saw the beauty and she saw the glory. When we opened up that building, our first Sunday, we thought we'd have two services. We built a sanctuary that seated 800. It was so packed out that the fire department came and demanded that we go to three services. We're like, okay, for you, because your firemen and your outfits are so nice, we'll do it. And so the next Sunday, we were at three services, and, and so it continued on. But that was like the glory. Uh, the, she saw it. She saw it before any of us could see it. You see, in your light, as we were reading in Psalm 36, the psalmist says, in your light, we see light. We see light. But if you've got those blocks on your eyes, you won't be able to take in the light. And that's what the Pharisees had. They had these blocks. So even when they saw, they couldn't see. What was beautiful looked ugly. What was ugly looked beautiful. What was good looked bad. And what was bad looked good. Because they had these blockages. Jesus is invited to the house of the Pharisee, verse 37, when he went, he, notice first that Jesus goes even where he's not wanted, but he's invited. I love this because he's in college classrooms where he's not wanted, but he's invited. He goes in there. The Pharisees were watching Jesus not to judge fairly whether or not he was the Messiah, but to prove that he wasn't. That's the bias. That's the blockage. They were looking for fault. Have you ever noticed criticizing is so easy? Anyone can find fault. And these men found fault with the perfect Jesus. If you want to find fault, you will find it. Let me just tell you that. If you are looking for fault, if you're looking for a reason to discredit or criticize, you'll find it. But the Bible tells us and exhorts us that we are to look for the good and excellent and perfect will of God, Romans 12, 2. Not to look at what needs to be improved, but to look at the improvement that has already happened. 
and this is impossible without a transformed mind. The Pharisees had a particular tradition of washing their hands, and it was not according to God's law, but according to traditions that had been passed down, had nothing to do with hygiene or righteousness. Jesus refused to follow these ritualistic traditions of man or give them any credibility. Jesus, knowing their criticism, what was going on, capitalized on this time to talk about the blockages, the woes, the things that kept them from seeing. Jesus was grieved at the impediments to light that were in their perspective. He wasn't like, you know, you're going down. He was more like, oh, I wish you would get rid of those so you could see. The Pharisees were concerned only with the outward and the blockages were rituals, how you washed. It was all about methodology and their methodologies, their recipes became a blockage to, to letting light in. They were caught up with the minuscule while ignoring the greater, the greater things like justice and God's love. They loved the praise of men or the, the, they wanted to be someone important. They wanted the best seats in the synagogue and men to acknowledge them in public places. These were blockages because if they acknowledged Jesus, they wouldn't get those best seats. They'd have to share and they wouldn't be acknowledged in public places. They were defiling everyone they met by these rituals because they were turning people away from God to rituals and to minuscule and to self-importance and to self-atonement, self not looking to God, but saying, I can work up, I can do this. Then there were the lawyers and they had woes. These lawyers were more concerned about how they were perceived and about their reputation than their character. And these things blocked from the light. They burdened down people with laws, verse 46. And yet they themselves felt that they were above the law, that the laws were for the little people. I have encountered Christians with this attitude in leadership. They put heavy burdens on people and they don't do those things. They tell people, you know, you need to use this methodology to read your Bible and you have to read this many chapters a day. And they're not doing that. Years ago, there was a pastor that came to Brian. He was doing a married couple's um, book. And in his book, he, he said that every couple must read their Bible together every morning. And Brian said to him, do you and your wife do that? He said, oh no, never. And he said, but you're telling other people to do it? He said, Cheryl and I tried that. We fought. It was really bad. So now we read separately and we just tell each other what we read and we're so happy. It didn't work for us. I know other couples it works for. They're better than we are. They're nicer than we are. But for us, it didn't work. So I don't try to give anybody anything that doesn't work for me. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, consider the farmer that has to be the first partaker of the crops. He has to eat what he's growing before he gives it to the public. And if it's not working for me, if it's not edible for me, I'm not going to serve it to you. 
Years ago, I, I told you this so many times, but I made a spinach artichoke casserole with fried onions on top. And I was so excited about this casserole had cheese in it. I was about to take it to the table. Hadn't made this recipe before. Took a bite of it as I was walking to the table. It was so gross. It was like sick. And I remember like walking to the table, taking a bite. It's in my mouth and I'm going, I turned around and dumped it down the sink. And they said, maybe we would have liked it. And I said, you wouldn't have liked it. I won't serve you anything that I won't eat. And I can't serve you anything that I won't eat. It's not right. But that's what these lawyers were doing. They were serving to the people what they didn't do. And yet they wouldn't even help the people to do it. Like, well, we'll help you. And we can do this. No, they were like, you do it. No, we don't need to do it. But you need to do it because you're the little people. So wrong. There was a pride. There was a legalism. And there was an elitism. And that's what we see in these verses. These lawyers took away the key to knowledge, which was Jesus. They kept people from knowing the truth, and they refused to come to the truth themselves. Those in the church hierarchy who did not years ago, in the beginning of the church, they took away the key to people because they took away the word of God and put it only for the elite. And they didn't want the common people having the Bible and that's why they hated people like um, Martin Luther so much who put the, and Tyndale, who put the Bible back in the hands of the common people. But this is the type of elitism that these lawyers had. They built tombs to honor the prophets that their fathers murdered. This pride that they had. And Jesus said, don't you understand when you're building those tombs, you're saying, yes, our fathers sinned. And you can't disassociate from the sins of the Father. You've got to realize that you have those same sins yourself. C.S. Lewis referred to chronological snobbery. And I love that term. In other words, we often look back and go, Oh, Eve, how dare you eat the apple? She's ruined my life. Not realizing, you know what? If, if we were in that garden, we had that tree, we had that serpent talking to us, we're like, can I have five? We would be so bad. But we look back at others and go, oh, they're so bad. If you lived in that time, you've got to realize those same propensities to sin are in me. And unless we acknowledge those propensities to sin, that's the path we're going to go down. But they built tombs as if they wouldn't do those same things. We need to recognize that we have this evil nature As Jesus spoke these things, warning them, trying to get rid of the blockages, they were so upset. We're told that they begin to assail him vehemently, cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him, seeking to catch him in something so that they could accuse him. Only Jesus could survive such scrutiny in such perfection because their behavior only exposed them for what they were and their true motives. As we, as we walk in the light, as we seek to be children of light, we need to put in the practice of prayer constantly. It's a daily thing. It's a daily thing. We need to meet with the Father of lights in the name of the one who is light and gives light to men. And the more we're in prayer and communication, the more radiant we will get. 
Secondly, we need to constantly enthrone Jesus on our hearts. Now you might say, but Cheryl, he's in charge of my heart. I know. But Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 17 that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In Psalm 119, the psalmist said, how can a young man cleanse his way, his heart, by taking heed to your word? There is this need to daily make sure that Christ is on the throne of our heart, that he's still the strong man, that he's still in charge of the castle of the heart. And then we need to continue to take in the light to continue to get rid of the blockages and that which would keep us from the light. I'm going to be 57 in April. Now, I'm not telling you for birthday presents, but if you feel led, that's okay. <laughs> but I'm telling you this because I was thinking about 57 and I was thinking, what can I match 57 with? And then it came to me, Heinz 57 sauce. And what is Heinz 57 sauce? Let me tell you. It's made of 57 different ingredients, hence the name, 57 sauce. And as I was thinking about turning 57, because these are things I dwell on, I started thinking about how I'm made up of all these different ingredients. Years ago, a very kind woman had been listening to our study in John, and she wrote down all the pithy, wonderful sayings that I said during the year. I was so excited to read those, like I have ministered, I said something intelligent. But when I looked over those papers, I realized that I was only quoting people I knew. Like, oh, I got that one from my father. Well, that was my mother. That was Anne Easy. That I stole from Corey Tinboom. That I stole from my Sunday school teacher in the fourth grade. That I stole, I mean, I'm like, am I original at all? And I realized that that so many people had spoken into my life. And a lot more than 57. I'd be, you know, Cheryl Billion Sauce. That all these people had spoken into me. But you know what? You have to let people speak into your life. You have to get rid of the blockages so that the light can come into your eyes and flood your body with light. I am enriched and I am tastier because these people have spoken into my life. And when I thought about that, I got so excited. I saw Leona Carney today and I got so excited because years ago, she said to me, when you see a Muslim, smile at them because their life is so hard and you'll be the only person that shows any love. And so recently I was in Germany, there were all these refugees and I said to my friend, I said, okay, we're going to see how many burkas we can get to get crinkly eyes because if their eyes crinkle, they're smiling. And so we were smiling at every single one and just like, I've got five. I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm four. I'm going to catch up with you. And we would see their eyes crinkle underneath because they needed that love. But I still remember that. And I put it into practice. She brought light to my life. She brought this perspective of loving and how to show that love practically. Celeste Yohai is here. When I was a high schooler and I was a little bit on the wild side, she befriended me. And she spoke into my life. And I'm enriched because she is my friend. And I think of so many people who have enriched my life. But you know what? Blockages. If we allow those blockages... If we don't check for those impediments, we won't 
let people speak into our lives. We'll be so prejudiced against people. Well, they've got them. I'm not sure they believe in pre-tribulational rapture. So I don't, I'm going to let them speak into my life. No. Do you know God wants us to let people speak into our lives? I pre-trib, but nevertheless. God wants people to speak into our lives. And we've got to get rid of those blockages and those prejudices and those biases that keep us from becoming Heinz 57 sauce. If you're 58, now you've got even more ingredients. But this is what I'm saying. For the radiant life, prayer, Jesus on the throne, and finally, get rid of the blockages to how you see that your whole life might be flooded, flooded with the light of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the radiance that you have given us by speaking into our lives through the knowledge of Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that we would become more and more radiant, that people would see the light that is in us and glorify our Heavenly Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.